Okay, welcome to Far Off Sounds Podcast. Uh, Post-Christmas 2021, we're about to head into the new year, and today we're talking to Arrington de Dioniso. Uh, Nick, you you know Arrington from years back. You're the one who invited him to come on board, so why don't you tell the people a little bit about who he is? Sure. So I met Arrington in uh, Java, uh, Indonesia, in 2011. I was on a, a research grant from uh, Wayne State University to make films about contemporary music in Indonesia. It just so happened that Arrington was uh, there at the same time, um, kind of exploring similar themes. Um, he was collaborating with a lot of local musicians on the island of Java uh, for his Malaikat Dan Singa project, means angels and lions. Uh, which is kind of like, it was like a post-punk, hypnotic uh, uh, trio, or it was a four-piece band, and he, he was the front man for it. Um, but the instrumentation on his, uh, on that tour, uh, we went on tour with Sinyawa. I, I think he hit me up via uh, Facebook or something, or we just got on the phone, something like that. Or I even met him at a gig. It's hard to remember. Uh, and he invited us to essentially follow him around Java, him and Senyawa, and film this tour. It was like a 10-day long tour um, because this guy, Vincent Moon, had to leave the country or, you know, he had other plans. I think the initial plan was for Vincent Moon to be his, like, official tour documenter. And uh, once, Vincent like, Moon, longtime arch enemy of Far Off Sound. <laughs> Yeah, so once once Vincent Moon was uh, unable to follow him around Java, we got the call, and he paid our way and uh, uh, had an extremely, uh, one of the most memorable experiences of, of my life is, is that 10-day that tour with, with Arrington and uh, Sinyawa. Um, we kept in touch over the years as uh, he's been back to Indonesia a few times to record more and do a couple more tours, and... Uh, as a touring musician, he's, he finds himself in Detroit, you know, once every couple of years or something like that. So we've always kept in touch, and uh, um, I think he'd be a great person to have on this show. And we should also say that he his his life and his work is intersected with, like, modern history a little bit in the sense that uh, in, I believe it was in 2016, so he had made a, he, he's also a painter, he's kind of a prolific multimedia artist he does these incredible kind of like weird almost mythological seeming paintings and he had been invited to paint a mural on the inside of a space called comet ping pong or comet pizza i'm not sure exactly what the comet correct. ping pong comet ping pong which was also a pizza shop in washington dc and this was in like 2010 or 2011 uh there were photos taken of that mural you know, probably put on social media at the time, and then it was painted over. But then years later, in 2016, the totally, but like the bizarre sort of like proto QAnon uh, conspiracy theory online subculture f- sort of focused their eyes on on Comet Ping Pong and created this whole Pizzagate conspiracy out of it. And Arrington's mural somehow somebody dug up an old photo of this mural started he became a big part of the conspiracy theory and was kind of given all of this very bizarre and i think uh somewhat unwanted very probably very unwanted attention 
at that time from the online right. And then, but then also some, I think it also drew a lot of awareness to his work and he, he got a lot of support and a lot of exposure in a probably a good way in some ways from the people who came out to support him during this time. But he was essentially embroiled in like, you know, early Trump era batshit crazy online conspiracy theories that were focused on analyzing his his artwork. Which oh, it was so strange. Very I remember, weird. I remember seeing a couple of videos that like, you know, people online made where it was slideshows of his work and then like pointing to them as examples of like satanic ritual abuse and this is all like part of the larger uh, uh, child trafficking uh, child sex trafficking like uh, uh, operation that was uh, in the basement of Comet Ping Pong and this was all like clues and it was it's just so fucking stupid like it's so dumb and and I don't know just, and so I, and so we want to talk to him a little bit about that as well and find out like what it's like to sort of be have your artwork be at the the center of something just so weird and crazy and like of the moment. So yeah, both he's both like a, a a somewhat influential experimental musician and 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 prolific sort of musical artist and and touring and recording musician who has done all this in, incredible stuff in the US and in Indonesia and other places. And he's a documentary filmmaker, we should say, who worked a little bit in Indonesia making a film about um trance music there. Or would did, you call it trance music? Probably not. Did Aronson make that? It's called Reek did he make? Yeah. Interesting. Google it. I mean, I love Reek. It's great stuff. That's like uh, Sundanese trance ritual. Um, and the music that comes along with that is fantastic. Yeah, his, his Wikipedia page says he directed Reek, Trans Music in Possession in West Java. Very a Documentary cool. film. Yeah. So he, his interests intersect with ours a lot, and he also has this in, like v- sort of weird interest. He's a... His his artwork has plays a very strange role as a footnote in like modern conspiracy and sort of like internet age stuff. So super interesting guy. I'm excited to talk to him. Yeah, um, let's get into it. Let's get into it. <laughs> For, thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, what's going on? I haven't heard about this snowstorm. What's what's the deal with it? What's going on with it? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Olympia, Washington, we, we, we kind of get like one major day of snow every year. And last year, it came on Christmas Day. Nice. And, and, and then same thing this year, kind of like on the calendar. It, it started snow. It started snowing Christmas night. So we we didn't have like a snowy Christmas morning, but but that night it started going and it just didn't stop. And so we had, you know, kind of like our our version of a blizzard. And then there hasn't been any more snow today, but everything that has been on the ground has stuck. 
What are we What are we talking about in terms of uh, footage here? Oh, I mean, you know, maybe like five inches or something. I mean, it's not bad. It, it, it's nothing crazy, but the thing is, Thurston County owns two snowplows for the entire <laughs> county. Okay. Because, like I said, we only get this once a year, right. and so and so people. I mean, I you know, I know you guys are in Detroit. You know, it's like you're you're gonna you're gonna laugh, but like n- nobody knows fuck all what to do. Yeah, I'm in LA, so I mean, I, I we we don't get snow here, but I do know that attitude. It happens with rain in Los Angeles, where people freak out. Yeah, yeah, we get a lot. We you know we know how to drive in the rain up here, but yeah, uh, but like a little bit of ice. Everyone's tires are bald. Everybody you know puts off getting new tires. No one ever. It's like, oh yeah, I meant to get new tires last week. It's like, well, you're you're not going anywhere right now, so right. you could you could surf to the tire store. And, uh, yeah, but no, but but yeah, but I but I love it. I mean, you know, it's just like it's just one more reason to stay inside and not do anything. And yeah, we we happen to be very blessed, and there's a lot of food. Uh, our power is not. There's no danger of our power going out. Apparently. Uh, that's that's where it gets thorny is when the when the trees start cracking and knocking down the lines then then you get a bad situation here because then it can take a long time for them to come fix it but um, as as long as we've got gas in the stove we're you know we're making up big pots of food and hanging out and you know I, I live in a big collective house there's seven of us and oh wow you know it's it there's enough space for everybody we've got all the all the different streaming things on the big TV and watching movies and hanging out. I mean, I'm, I've, I've got nothing to complain about. I like it. Yeah. I really, I, I mean, living in LA, I really miss the kind of like sort of hibernation that comes with winter because in here, winter is when it's actually nice out. It's like time to go outside. The closest, the closest analogy is summertime when nobody wants to go outside because it's over 100 degrees for like two weeks at a time. But that's not a pleasant experience at all. I think we should talk about how you guys met in Indonesia and talk about that aspect of your work a little bit, Arrington. Well, so around 2008 or nine. Oh, okay. 2008, Old Time Religion did a really long tour. We... We did our longest tour we had ever done. We did a month going from the West Coast to the East Coast. We did a month all over Europe. And we did another month like flying back to New York. And and then another month going from the East Coast back to the West Coast. So it was like a three-month tour. Uh, My girlfriend broke up with me while we were about to play a show in Poland. And uh, our, our bass player was like getting married and was about to start a family. Our, our drummer was kind of going off all over the place doing stuff. And then we had a sax player in the band. It was our, our bass player's little brother was playing sax. And, you know, he was, I don't know. So we had this like really grueling tour. And then we all ended up living in completely different parts of the country. Um, so we had this kind of circumstantial hiatus where we didn't play any shows like, you know, it, it, the band never broke up. We just didn't play for like 10 or 15 years or something. So here I was 
kind of like trying to figure out like, well, I could wait around for old time religion to do like another thing, but like, I don't know, maybe I should like book some studio time and like come up with something else. So I was listening to a lot of dance hall. I got into this British band from the early eighties called Blurt, this sort of, you know, real, uh, real out there kind of avant poetry, no wave group. Uh, I got really into them. I rediscovered my love of this Russian band, Zvuki Moo. I was listening to them a lot. And, and so like, I had this idea for the types of sounds I wanted to hear. Like I wanted to hear like, you know, just like repeating, like, like just repetition, like, like these rhythmic cycles that would just go on and on and on and have these kind of layers of kind of scronky stuff on top. And then, you know, I mean, my, my vocal technique is something I've, you know, been developing for years and years, you know, so I, you know, I use like throat singing and I use these other kind of intense vocal sounds. So, you know, like, like I knew that like, that's a formula. If, if, if I employ this formula in this specific way, like there, there's, there's no way, like I, I can't lose, like it's going to be a winning approach to creating a new band, <clears throat> you know, like these heavy kind of bass lines, like, uh, you know, very drum and bass driven with kind of noisier guitars and, and uh, intense vocals and, and a very, you know, confrontational kind of performance style. Um, but then I had this idea. I didn't really, I didn't want to be stuck in doing it in English. So I had this idea of like translating William Blake into, I thought, well, maybe I'll like translate William Blake into Spanish and do it as kind of like a reggaeton thing. Um, and I started working on it in Spanish and it wasn't coming out the way I wanted. And then around that time, I was dating this girl who had lived in Malang for three years when she, she, she had actually been a missionary when she was a teenager, hmm. lived in Malang, East Java, and spoke fluent Indonesian. So, you know, I'd taken like some gamelan classes when I was studying ethnomusicology in, at the Evergreen State College. And I knew how to say, Selamat Malam, Selamat Pagi. I knew how to say a few things in Indonesian. And I knew a few things about Indonesia that I could like carry on a conversation with somebody who lived there and seem interesting and, and kind of, you know, show off uh, that I was, you know, good, like uh, dating material. And then I thought like, well, you know what? Indonesian is not that hard to learn. I'll just teach myself Indonesian with the dictionary and Google Translate and I'll write a bunch of songs. Uh, I'll, I'll take these phrases from William Blake and I'll, I'll kind of, dive into the Zohar and get these like kind of Kabbalistic, you know, ancient Jewish mysticism things and kind of, and kind of riff off of it. So I took like, I took all these things from William Blake and the Zohar and used them as like launching pads for free association and created the first Malaikat Dunsinga album. I'd never been to Indonesia at that point. I just recorded the album. And then I had my friend who, uh, he was like laid off from working on a show at the Cartoon Network 
and he like had a lot of free time and he's like, Hey, you know, like I'm just, you know, I'm like, I'm on unemployment. I'm not doing cartoon network right now. If you want to like make a video or something, you know, just send me some ideas. I'll make you a video. So I was like, all right. So like the next time I was in LA, we got together and he like took some photos and we kind of like talked about some ideas and he did this really crazy rotoscope animation of this song, Mani Malaikat, which is like kind of the best song from that first Malaikat Dunsinga album. We put it on YouTube. And a few months later, I went back on there and I was like, whoa, what the hell, dude? There's like, there's like 50,000 people checking this video out. What the fuck? And then there was like all these comments on the comment thread whoa, there's like people in Indonesia who are actually checking this out. And the comments were a mix of, you know, total bewilderment. They're like, like, why are you doing this? This is really weird. But then there were people who were like, whoa, this is like, people were really into it. And then there were people who were messaging me like, yo, Mas, when are you going to come play in Java? You know, when are you going to come play in Jakarta? When are you going to come play in Jogja? And like all these people messaging me and I'm like, fuck, man, like, I don't know how to book a tour in Indonesia, but I had enough people kind of, I don't know, like committing to the idea of it happening that we finally got in touch with, uh, with Wowo, you know, Walk the Rock, who, who's the, you know, the, the founder of the Yes, No Wave Music Club. And um, we kind of negotiated like, okay, like I could go out and do like a residency in Jogja and have like a home base and, and stay there. But then he's going to hook me up with all these musicians in Jogja. So I can go out there and we could like form a band. And so like at that time, you know, a, 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 you know, there were bands and there's like a punk scene, but people didn't really, people weren't, there wasn't really like an infrastructure for people going on tour the way that, you know, the way that like the underground DIY circuit is in other places. And I mean, really, we used the occasion of Malaika Tansinga paired up with Sinyawa, and that was their very first tour in Indonesia. So in joining forces, we were attempting to build that infrastructure for like, hey, if you are someone who's like setting up shows at some collective space, whether it's in a village or like a coffee shop in Surabaya or that, uh, you know, that, that like that kind of art center thing in Malang uh, where, where we first met uh, or, you know, the Jakarta noise festival, which was, you know, that, that was a little bit more established. I think that was maybe their second or third year doing that. Um, there, there, there was a lot of potential there to build that infrastructure. And so now I mean, I think it took a while because like, you know, then like that, you know, launched a lot of, a lot of things got launched by that tour that, 
you know, things that I have, I mean, I have nothing to do with them being set into motion, just that, you know, if you're in a certain place at a certain time and you're, you know, you're talking about things on this kind of energetic wavelength, because then what happened after that first tour in Indonesia was I had my buddy, uh, Christian Pauline, who books a lot of shows in Scandinavia, and he's connected to some of the bigger festivals in Sweden and, and Copenhagen and all that. You know, he was like, hey, what, what's the story with this band, Sinyawa? Their, their booking agent is talking to me. And, and, so, and so I could be in a position to say, Christian, listen to me. Whatever you have to do, bring Sinyawa to Scandinavia at, at any cost, absolutely any cost you have to make sure that they come. And so, and so I could be in a position where I could say that to him. And then that was Sinyawa's first uh, tour in Europe was, was playing his festival. And so, and so then, you know, and then the momentum keeps going where it's like, if you talk enough to the right people who are doing things behind the scenes, it, it can grow in this kind of exponential way where you're, you know, you're no longer in control of it or have anything to do with, you know, the connections are being made on their own. It's, it's very mycelial, you know, it's, it's how mushrooms spread their scores and reproduce because, you know, now an album like Al Kisa can come out and there's like, there's like 300 different people all over the world who've made their own remixes of Al Kisa as a way to kind of further propel this kind of, community all all around you know it is all... interesting in that like this this is all happening in 2011 right this yeah. is when this is the fall of 2011 um when we were over there this was kind of the moment when um i think a lot of people were getting like social media was taking off in yeah. like like on a global scale like it had been in the united states for the last five years like 2005 to 2011 I mean, I just, I noticed that like all of this was made possible by way of social media, like exactly. in such a way that like, like the touring infrastructure was, was being developed through online networks and walk. I know is very big on that as well as is Senyawa. And the way that Indonesians use social media is a way that like us in the West have to learn from, you know, they're they're taking these, you know, corporate tools and completely repurposing them in a really different way than how we do it. You know, I feel like, you know, like Americans get on Facebook and, you know, some people have kind of figured out how to promote themselves and like promote their own projects and like, oh, like, you know, we give each other a pat on the back. We're promoting our own projects. But Indonesians are doing it with a completely different mindset of like, it's really fundamentally about building a community that is going to be like, you know, because, you know, like, like these punk kids, they might be in a village that is like really strictly Muslim. And, you know, if, if they book a show in their practice space, there might be like five kids in their entire village that are going to give a shit about going to a noise show. So they have to build 
whoa, you still there? They have, they have to know how to build a community beyond their immediate surroundings. They're, they're, that's, that's their survival plan is building that community through, through Twitter or YouTube or, or whatever. Um, we, we have to learn from that model because it's a matter of survival for, you know, a, a, a healthy underground in, in, in a sometimes hostile ecosystem, you know? Um, but, but yeah, they, they really have it dialed in with, with, with how to do it. Well, speaking of a healthy underground and a hostile ecosystem, I have to, I have to ask the, probably a question that you have over talked a million times in your life, but like the, the, the Pizzagate mural thing, like the whole thing at, at Comet Pizza, I'm really interested in, in sort of how that impacted, how that experience, which seemed somewhat traumatic from a distance, impacted your art practice and especially your visual art practice and whether like how you've sort of moved forward and evolved from that, from that period, which was like, what, like six years ago now? Yeah. I mean, we were... I was kind of talking about this with my roommates just the other day because like there were a lot of different things that were kind of being lumped on top of that all at the same time, because within, within a month of the Pizzagate thing, Trump's election, I'm getting all this hate from all over the place. Then there's the ghost ship fire. Right. And, and, and there were a few people well, you know, one pretty, pretty good friend uh, who died and then a few other people who were, you know, more peripherally related to my community also died in that, like, devastating tragedy. And then that propelled this other response from these kind of alt-right, you know, this, like, growing uh, neo-Nazi thing where it's like, oh, yeah, like, DIY venues, that's where like a lot of queer kids hang out. So like we could call the, the fire department and like rat out these venues. And so then like within a week, hundreds of basement venues and warehouse venues all over the country were, were shut down or, you know, faced with huge fines or, I mean, I, you know, just, just everything, everything about it. All that was, going on and i was put into a position where it was deeply personal uh from from my vantage point and and also had international repercussions um yeah i you know i don't i don't have any good soundbite like I, I i still don't really know what to say about it like uh except for how deeply fucked up it all is i mean my art practice um were you able to keep like did that i guess i wonder if it were me like i would have had a, like an issue maybe with continuing to paint did it like block you up at all or, or anything it, like that? It, it it blocked me up in ways but maybe not the ways you would think i mean i i was able to propel the 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 media stuff that was coming out of it that was supportive of me uh, I was able to propel into uh, raising a lot of money. Mm. You know, I, I was doing a thing for a while where, like, 
uh, I, you know, I'd sell prints or original paintings uh, of, of some of the paintings that had been targeted by these, uh, by the online alt-right stuff. I'd be like, oh, here, here, here's a print of that specific painting and I'm giving 50% of the price to the Standing Rock water protectors, mm -hmm. giving 50% of the price to, uh, you know, uh, uh, abortion rights defense groups, you know, so, so I was raising money for myself, raising money for these groups that were anathema to alt-right sensibility. And so at least the people who were like directly trolling me would see that in my internet post and kind of back off a little bit. Right, like, because their energy would have been fueling this thing that they were against. In well, because I was I was going on there and I was posting like, hey, guys, like this week I was able to send a, a, I was able to send fifteen hundred dollars to defend abortion rights. Thanks to your help. Right. So so let's keep it going. You know, like like <laughs> if, if you want to fuck around, th th this is how we're fundraising, you know, like so. So uh in in that way it's it's not going to be a model that's going to work for everybody who's doxxed or targeted by trolls it's not going to work in every situation but because i already had a public persona for music and art and and you know a small social media presence i was able to use the the negativity sent my way and kind of i was able to you know work some uh magical passes as they say uh that that ended up going in my favor i love that now now the the, the threat is ever present i mean you know a, a dude walked into comet pizza with a gun and started shooting at the wall because he thought that there was some hidden uh passageway behind the wall where the where all these like kids are hidden like a you fucking know? video game or something so you know, you know so so, so you know, I, I I could play a show anywhere in the world, and and someone could just decide that they're gonna they're gonna you know end it all. Like, I, there's nothing I can do to stop that from happening on on my personal end. Uh, I think the likelihood of that happening is fairly low because they have other targets now that are more uh, you know trending topics. They're they're much more likely to shoot up a vaccination clinic then then you know i mean i mean honestly that's 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 where they're directing their hate right now yeah so you know but that doesn't mean i'm in the clear forever you know like like I, but you know that's just how these things go like they'll they'll latch themselves to like one or two things that they really, really hate and then and then they're going to move on to something else i mean um I think one thing I didn't realize until I was doing a little more research on it to prepare for this conversation, I don't, I didn't realize that those murals were already well painted over at that time, that this whole part of their conspiracy theory was like several years past at the, at the time that they were getting well, into it. And, and the other thing is that they were, they were mixing me up with a completely different artist who like they were showing work by, you know, there was one artist that, they had done some kind, they had never even done an actual art show with them, but they had maybe worked. 
I don't even know what the connection even was, but there, there was another artist who had had real experiences of child abuse when they were young Hmm. and part of their therapeutic process was creating paintings that depicted some of these terrible things. They were putting this artist's work online and saying that it was mine. And 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 I mean you 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 could look at I mean there's no there's there's no connection whatsoever. And then they were and then they were they were also picking pieces of mine that had no connection whatsoever to the mural, to had no connection to concert posters, had no connection with anything to do with Comet Ping Pong. And they were saying, this is the kind of art that Comet Ping Pong supports. Even though there was no connection other than that, I had happened to have done this mural and I had had happened to have performed there. So, yeah, I guess I wonder, like, it seems like you were able to kind of transition this meme magic into a a positive uh, form, which is really cool. And I think a good lesson for possibly for some people, you know, moving forward with this kind of stuff. But like... With your own painting, like how, I guess, yeah, have you been able to continue to work in that style or in that way, knowing that like these, you know, this can get interpreted in all of these kind of like absolutely bonkers, sometimes dangerous ways? Yeah, no, I mean, my my style has changed a lot, but it's not that my style wouldn't have changed anyway. Right. But, um... You know, I mean, I did a series of paintings that were like much more explicitly political that, you know, was was different than things I had done before that. I mean, I I did this whole series of paintings with like, you know, the a, a, a bloody head of certain political figures. Yeah, I saw that. You know, <laughs> it's really good. Stick, sticking out of a saxophone. Yeah. bleeding all over the saxophone that kind of thing um you know I, I i hadn't really been doing that kind of thing before um you know maybe some of the it i don't know it's weird like in exploring some of the like erotic dimensions in in mytho- mythological and erotic themes in my paintings I feel like it forced me to be more like it. You walk a fine line because on the one hand, you know, you're, you're trying to like unleash the unconscious mind. You're trying to like paint without any censorship. You're, you're trying to like, you know, work with the imagery that comes to your unconscious mind and just let it all kind of vomit out on the page. Um, I felt like I had to become a little bit more conscientious of how those processes work as magical acts Mm. that if you're working with imagery that resonates beyond your immediate personal circumstances, you, you do have some, responsibility for how people take it Mm. and so people people taking it the wrong way 
you know, why are they taking it the wrong way? And why is it the wrong way? Because, you know, like, I mean, I feel like, you know, when, when a painting is hanging in a gallery, people have a deeply personal experience of a painting and, and they're, they're going to put their own story. You know, that painting is going to be a mirror to their own state of consciousness. I'm not personally responsible for where their state of consciousness is, but I am responsible for like, I don't know, like, like, like what I'm doing, like what I, what I'm doing with that imagery is, is, is flowing from my, you know, my, my conduit is coming through me. So if I'm going to have shocking imagery that, that I know is going to be upsetting to certain demographics, I'm going to be more conscientious about it. Like, like damn right. You're upset about this. Mm -hmm. And this is why you're upset about this. You know, not somebody saying like, Oh, well this, this proves a connection to pedophilia. Like, no, like, like, like what the fuck are you talking about this painting has nothing to do with any of that that's your own shit yeah. you know so it's like yeah like you have to you're you're dealing with this kind of like uh the stakes of projection from other people suddenly become a lot higher it's so weird and i feel like that's a really interesting thing about how it's kind of sad that like working from the subconscious working without any filters that is a, that is a that is a way to work. That's a really important art practice, and it feels, in some ways, like a loss that the stakes have to be raised so high again to sort of uh, protect against that type of. Well, of you know, like I had all these I had all these paintings with chopped off heads, you know, and where I might be coming from is like, well, that you know, that's that's a motif that's in mythology everywhere. Yeah. You know, there there are, are deep resonances with with you know unconscious, you know, like like freeing the you know it's 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 it, it, it's addressing the mind body split. It's about you know cycles of regeneration and renewal. The you know the king who is sacrificed and dies. It's it, it's 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 there's a you know the the veget the, the the cycles of vegetation and fermentation and. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of like mycological symbolism in that. But, you know, the, the, the people seeing it who are not making those associations are, are, are putting really like backwards, redundant perspectives onto it. And so if, if I'm doing imagery that involves heads now in, in, in 2022, as opposed to what I was doing in, you know, whatever, this is like 2010 when I made the mural, uh, you know, if there's gonna be a disembodied head, you know, maybe I'll have like vines growing out of it or, you know, flowers coming out of it or, or like the roots of a tree or, or, or it'll be like intertwined with, you know, something that indicates that like, oh, like this isn't like a dead person. This person isn't, this isn't an execution mm. or this isn't a, 
this isn't meant to represent torture. This isn't representing, uh, you know, some some disgusting evil thing. It's 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 I'm I'm doing I'm doing something in the painting to emphasize, you know, the the mythological continuity over the grotesque. And so in that sense, you could say like, well, that's a compromise that I am choosing to make as an artist. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's a compromise I felt forced to make, but it's also for me has to do with like clarifying my own purpose in, in what it is I'm communicating. Like, like I, I do have some responsibility in that. So yeah, sometimes compromises can be, can be a, a chance for growth in a way or a chance for helping us articulate our, ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, um, yeah, I definitely don't want to, I don't want to end on that. I feel like I, I, I wanted to touch on it, but it's cause it's, I think it's really interesting the way that your work has intersected with history if you know, in this kind of like weird little explosion back a few years ago, but um, how long have you been in Olympia? Uh, I came out here in 1992. Oh, for, shit. So I was, I was 17. Okay. Uh, I left Spokane where I went to high school. Uh, but I'm not from Spokane either. I, I was actually born in Chicago, but I lived in Arkansas for a few years, kind of in the middle. What, uh, what brought you to, what was, what was the, the trajectory? What was, were your parents taking you, were they getting new jobs and moving around? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, my parents were both ministers. And so there were always these weird kind of conditions with they would send my dad to go start a new church and then that church would fail and then he would have to go start another church somewhere else or or join into one that was like, you know, already existing but the minister had retired or um you you kind of grew up in churches. I grew up in churches, yeah. And a lot of your work tends to, you know, have a, a deep spiritual element to it, uh, especially in, the, in terms of kind of the topics you explore, especially when yeah. you're working with musicians or artists on, on the other it, side of the world. Yeah, it's it's definitely no accident. And, and, you know, part of that is, I would say that, like, I, I, I wouldn't characterize my dad this way now, but definitely like growing up the approach to spirituality on my dad's side was a very intellectualized mm-hmm. kind of thing. My mom was a little bit more, uh, how would I explain it? I mean, she, she care she kind of embodied more of this like, living faith kind of she 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 was a bit of a faith healer were they were your mom and dad the same denomination uh well that that's a complicated they they ended up the same denomination but they didn't they they had a circuitous path they they weren't always the same denomination so they they both ended up methodist but they they both started out in different things and then became Methodist later on at different times. Um, it, uh, it's, you know, I, it, it's, it, it's a whole long story. It's hard to really explain the whole thing, 
but um but for me like experiencing methodism junior high and high school it felt like this very kind of over intellectualized like kind of very disembodied sort of thing and so i i got really drawn into expressions of spirituality where the the physicality of the experience was a defining factor now living in spokane washington which is like at that time like 95% white and 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 very conservative um it was very difficult for me to find that in in any external way so it you know knowing what i was seeking i was really forced into a position where i had to invent that for myself um i got into punk rock uh it started going to all the, there was like one all ages space in in downtown spokane that had like hardcore shows pretty much every weekend um you know all the touring kind of skate punk bands would play there we had you know we had some names come through like like i got to see no means no a couple times and that was that was kind of life changing um that's how i found out about beat happening and of course you know ultimately seeing beat happening led me to olympia because i was like what there's this really really weird band in olympia and there's also a college there and the college is where all the like alternative kids who don't fit in anywhere they all go there and then they all fit in with each other cuz they're all the alternative kids you know mm. um, that's uh, evergreen state evergreen state college yeah which you know a, a lot of things have come and gone through evergreen um there there's there's definitely like a a legacy that reaches outwards across the world of you know you 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 dig deep enough you find evergreen people in really weird spots uh you know whether it's music film mycology is a really big one some of the biggest mycologists uh all kind of had a relationship with evergreen um, that's interesting that makes sense i mean they're yeah. learning learning science in a wet place it seems like that's where you gravitate to oh yeah yeah definitely so was the was the was the move from Spokane to uh, Olympia was it was it at all rebellious or was it just like these are my people I need to go? Uh, well, no, I mean, I, you know, they were they were sending me off to college, so I mean, it was a pretty 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 legit, you know, middle middle class kid. I mean, my dad drove me to the dorms and that kind of thing. Um, the weird thing about it, though, is that two months after I moved out to Evergreen, they had to move to Oklahoma City. Mm. So I didn't, at that point, I didn't really have like a way to, you know, I, I couldn't just go back and visit for the holidays. So I kind of, kind of really ended up starting my own family in Olympia. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I would, I would go for Christmas and that kind of thing, but, uh, but I, I never really, I mean, while they were living in Oklahoma, I never really enjoyed being in Oklahoma. 
once they moved out of Oklahoma, I've, I've since gone through a few times on tour and I, and like, I finally, you know, after years of going there every year for, for Christmas and just being, you know, stuck at my parents' house going through on tour, I finally discovered the real Oklahoma city underground. And there are actually some really fascinating people doing stuff down there who, who, who go really deep mm-hmm. that I, I had no idea actually live less than a mile from where my parents were living. So I, you know, I, I, I regret that I never made contact with that scene when I was, uh, you know, younger, right. um, but where did your parents, did they, did they settle or did they just keep going? No, then they, then they ended up in San Antonio and then, uh, you know, my mom passed away seven years ago and my dad, uh, was really sick of being in Texas. So he, uh, he joined my sister in Oakland, California. Okay. And that's the, now he's like done. Yeah. He's done moving. Okay. He's, yeah, he's done moving around. They, they. They they bought a multi generational house, so oh cool. My dad's doing childcare for the grandkids. My my sister's got three boys. Okay, and then um, you know they they've just got this like a like a multi level family house, and um, that's great. Yeah. Um. Did you when you were in in high school and you were getting into punk music and stuff does there did you i did you identify as christian or was there a point at which you if you don't mind me asking was there a point at which you kind of stopped identifying that way so i got into this i i read a lot i read a lot of books that i probably shouldn't have been reading <laughs> i mean i mean I'm, I'm i mean i'm just i mean like i read books that were like really above like my age level right okay you know so i was reading all this like leo tolstoy and peter kropotkin and, you know a lot of kind of you know autobiography of malcolm x and you know a lot of real kind of heavy stuff so my trajectory we could say is that I got into this sort of political pacifism. From there, I got into, you know, what they would call like Christian anarchism from from sort of like a Leo Tolstoy perspective. Yeah. So, so pacifistic, anti-state, collectivist Christianity. Um, then I kind of got deeper into like mythology and folk tales and fairy tales. And, you know, I, I don't know, I was calling myself a pagan at certain points. I was, uh, you know, I, I, I had like sort of like a, a, a Wicca phase for a little bit, but I didn't really get, I didn't really get too deep into that. I, you know, I, I kind of tried to figure out like, what was up with like native american spirituality before you know realizing that they don't <laughs> you know they, they don't really appreciate white kids kind of jumping in on that not knowing what they're doing so you, you know like i I, w- I was searching for different things and um you know reading up on things and uh um uh, 
I didn't, I didn't go any, I, I never went through any phase where I was just outright rejecting like Christianity altogether, but I was, uh, you know, very much against like, uh, you know, the way that religion was organized into these political systems and, you know, the repercussions that it's had on global politics and, um, you know, the ways that people are manipulated by their beliefs and, you know, all, all that stuff was, you know, really made me angry. And, um, but, but, you know, my, my parents are like, they're very like left-wing ministers, right? Mm. They're, 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 you know, they're all about organizing for, peace in Central America. They're, you know, they're all about supporting refugees and homeless and prisoners. And, 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 you know, so it's like our, my politics versus my parents' politics were never in any big conflict. It was more like when you're a teenager, you know, you see how people talk a certain talk, but like, are they really consistent in their views with the rest of their life, you know, like, it's like, well, why do we still drive cars? You, oh, you know, like, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it, it you know, kind of like a, uh, maybe I was a bit of a, a purist as, as to like, I mean, classic, classic teenage worldview. Yeah. 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 Of course. So when you, uh, when you started jamming and, and putting together groups in Olympia, Mm-hmm. What was the first one that was was quite serious? What was the first one you you took on tour? Well, so I I I have to backtrack a little bit before that because I while I was still in junior high school in eighth grade in Spokane. Um, so I was going to these punk shows on weekends, but after school, I would go down to the public library and they had a really huge uh, vinyl collection. They had every Smithsonian Folkways album you could dream of. I mean, I, there are records I remember seeing in the stacks there that like, if you, if you chanced upon those albums now, you would, you would steal them from the library because you know, they're worth like $300 or whatever. But they, but, but but at that time they'd let you check out as many albums as you could carry. So I was devouring all this Indonesian music, African music, a lot of indigenous North and South American music. Um, at the same time that I was going to all these punk shows, and like I was really craving, you know, some way of like fusing those experiences, because like the punk scene was actually pretty boring musically. Like it, it was just like a lot of, it, it was like really repetitive for the most part. But, but the energy of, you know, being in a mosh pit when you're like 14 years old, I mean, dude, you, you, you've seen Jatilan, you, you know what these kids go through. Like, like that energy of being like knocked around by your peers. And, you know, if you fall on the ground, like, five dudes rush down and pick you up again and throw you back in the pit. Like, like that's an incredible ecstatic experience to have at, at that, at that time. Um, but, the, but the music itself wasn't really that captivating. So like I was, 
you know, even then I was, I was sort of imagining that there's got to be some sort of, you know, fusion with this level of energy, but with, you know, sort of more interesting tonalities and timbres and, and things like that. Um, so I befriended this street musician who, who would set up in, in downtown Spokane and his whole thing was like, he didn't really sing songs as much as like he'd strum a couple chords on guitar. And then as people walked by, he would kind of improvise these like raps about the people who were walking by. Um, so he's you know, like, oh, here's a girl with a, a, a bright red dress. I hope she's having her day go best, you know, like, just, like some like nonsensical rhyme that, you know, it, it's charming and it's like, Oh yeah. Hey man, I'll throw you a dollar. And, and, and that's how, that was his only, uh, you know, that's how he made his money. His, that, that how he, how he made a living. Um, so I spent a lot of time with this guy and hung out with him all the time. And I, I think, you know, he had come, from kind of a theater background and he, he left that and he kind of embraced this more sort of psychedelic reality of living hand to mouth with his guitar and singing at people and spending time with him taught me a lot about like this element of showmanship um, that I think I still embody in my own way. Uh, I never got to the point where I could just make up raps about people on the spot. I, I've never been good at that. He he was trying to get me to do that, and I, I I just couldn't. So I had to go home. I had to go home and write twenty new songs to take down and uh, and perform them. But I would always duplicate cassette tapes, and I'd have a little merch booth next to my guitar stand, and I'd I'd, I'd have all these home recorded tapes that you know I'd never heard Daniel Johnston and. I'd never heard of all that stuff. Um, but the kinds of things I was doing, um, you know, were maybe maybe in a similar vein. I mean, like super lo-fi, um, more, well, yeah. I mean, Daniel Johnson, I mean, actually pretty different from Daniel Johnson. I mean, I, I was, you know, a, a more, I mean, they were more punk than that. They were more kind of rebellious. But uh, what was the what was the street musician's name? This guy you were hanging out with, Michael Carpack. Okay, yeah, and he is he is eighty four years old now. Uh, he he had a stroke a few months ago, and I went to visit him and gave him a little LSD, and that uh, helped him get out of the hospital. Oh. And he's he's doing I, he's doing good from what I hear now. Uh, I need to go back and see him again. But um, then I got a four track. And, the, and so like I had been recording tapes just with a tape recorder. When I got a four track and, and could actually separate the parts, you know, I never had a drum kit, but I had like trash cans that I could turn upside down. And if you stick a microphone right under them and crank the bass and you know, do this or that, put little bells on it or whatever. I mean, you can, you can get all these sounds out of, you know, pretty much everyday objects or things you get in uh, Goodwill. 
you know, I had a lot of broken instruments that I would like, you know, whatever it was, I would draw some kind of sound out of it. And, um, and then I, you know, then I would sing on top of it. And, and, you know, the cool thing about singing on top of these kind of like junkyard uh, cassette things is, you know, then you get inspired to kind of make up crazy voices. And, and then so I would, I would sing in all these like character voices. So by the time I got to Evergreen, I had put out nine different albums, like full length, hour long cassette tapes of all original material. I never did any covers. So I'd copy the tapes, I'd sell them. Nobody would buy them. So I'd give up selling them. I'd give them to people that I wanted to hear it. And eventually, after my, I think it was into my third year at Evergreen, I had been doing radio shows. I had been doing, uh, I was in this like Buto dance program. I'd done some theater. Uh, I'd done some kind of like weird performance art stuff with some friends. Well, finally in my third year, A friend of mine, Bryce Panic, and Aaron Hartman, two friends who had both contributed some drumming and some bass playing to one of my tapes, one of my one of my four track tapes. When they heard the result, they're like, you know, like your songs are really good. And have you ever thought about having a band? And so this was the moment where I looked at them both and I was like, well, I've, I've thought about having a band, but I have, I have no idea how to make a band, you know, like, I don't, how do you do a band? Like, I'd love to have a band. Let's have a band. Like, what's that even mean? You know, like I had I didn't really have any idea what to do. So our first band practice was New Year's Day. 1995 mm. and I came in with you know like you know like I said like I had put out like eight different full-length albums so I had I had like I had like 200 songs to pick from but when you're rehearsing with other people and they're trying to like figure out what parts they're gonna play and then like you know I had these all these songs are on four tracks so I had no idea like they weren't set up to just play with one guitar. So we had to figure out which songs would work with drums, bass, guitar. And then, you know, sometimes I would do clarinet, bass clarinet and that kind of thing. Um, so we had like two band practices, figured out, I think like 20 songs. And we're like, okay, let's let's book a show. And so we started booking all these shows because Evergreen had like I was I was I wasn't living in the official housing. I was living in this apartment complex like across the street from campus. So it was basically you you go out your door and you cross the street and you're on campus. So they had like a housing campus community center where you could set up a show and, and you could promote it. And they even had a budget where 
like they had a certain number of shows that they could do per semester where you'd actually get like a hundred bucks to to play. Mm. So, you know, I just, I just went up to the guy who like set up, set up the events. It was like, all right, we're going to, we're going to do a show. How about, you know, can we, can we do one next week? You know? And so so I was like, yeah, okay, well, yeah. All right. Who do I make the check out to? You'll get a hundred bucks. Like, you know, like we had no idea what we're doing. We'd never played a show before. Um, I mean, they, they both had been in other bands. You know, they, they, maybe, they maybe knew more what they were doing than I did. Um, but it, it was beautiful magic because, you know, we had all of our friends come. And I'm sure we sounded horrible, but we got everybody dancing and everyone was having fun. And it was this, this big, you know, it was this big party for us and our friends. And, um, you know, that's kind of how Olympia was where... You know, you come up with some terrible idea that everybody thinks is really creative and interesting and 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 people go gung ho to support you and, and kind of back you up in your in your madness. Yeah. And 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 that was just, you know, that was like kind of the, the moment in time that, that we had for ourselves that we, you know, we could we could do this crazy, noisy band and 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 people would be excited about it and um you know we had like a core group of maybe like 10 people who would you know they'd dress up and they'd put like little plastic flowers on their hat and and uh they they would just get really wild and then 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 the people who were the people who were just kind of like walking into the housing community center to like do their laundry or whatever they're like what the hell is going on here um you know would would witness this you know 18 year olds version of a of a Dionysian revelry uh, unfolding before their eyes um, do you what was this what was the what did you call the band to start well initially it was called Errington de Dioniso and the old time religion okay but but after a while my bandmates got pissed at me for putting myself in the center like that and they're like dude we're just old time religion I was like, all right, all right. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll follow whatever you, whatever you guys say. Do you think? Do you think that you're so you're still in Olympia? Do you, you, you said this is how Olympia was, and you know, I'm talking about the mid '90s here. Do you think that this kind of energy exists in Olympia still, and maybe it's just in spaces you don't know about, or do you think that things have kind of like that we're in sort of a new paradigm in terms of subcultural spaces like that? Well, subcultural spaces are kind of like microclimates nowadays. Um, I would say that the internet really knocked a lot of wind out of Olympia. Mm. Um, we, we came of age in Olympia at a time when there was a very distinct local culture. And what we were doing in old time religion, it wasn't really part of kind of like the wider punk scene of like, you know, we weren't really playing shows with a band like Bikini Kill or, you know, Slater Kenny and that kind of stuff. But 
but we would go see them when they played and you know we would be friends with some of the people who are in some of those bands and you know there was an overall like milieu of like oh yeah you know like if you you know you get it together you could go on tour and like and and then we would hear that like oh you know like when a band from olympia plays anywhere on like the west coast or new york or chicago or whatever like if people know that a band from olympia is coming they'll they'll come and see your show even though they don't know your particular band because bands from olympia have some kind of reputation and we didn't necessarily know what that was but but like we were told like yeah you know if you get on the road and book some shows like people will go see you because they'll be they'll be curious what you know because everyone hears about what's going on in olympia right just because you know just because we happen to be there at that time um but at the same time, you know, we, we weren't part of like that main, like, I, you know, I call it like the mainstream countercultural scene. But what we were doing wasn't without precedent either. There had been, you know, 10 years before us or 20 years before us, there had been like more kind of daring, kind of no wave type you know, I don't know what you call it, more experimental things had happened. And so, you know, th there were a few people who were kind of like ready to, to hear that and, and, and excited that it was happening again, or, 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 you know, maybe they were doing their own thing that they hadn't really brought out of the basement that much because they didn't think anyone would be interested. And then, you know, I mean, that's, that's how a scene kind of gets momentum is like you, like oh well you know this is what we do like what so what's what do you, what's your thing all about and you know it, it, it our first couple of years we had a really hard time uh be, be, every show we played was a show that we booked ourselves you know nobody ever asked us to join another bill mm. so we had a really hard time finding any other band even remotely similar territory to old time religion like um it, it, we, we just had to kind of embrace uh, this idea of like diverse sounding groups. I mean, we would, you know, play with, we, we play with like the one guy who invented his own style of country Western hip hop, you know, and like we'd, we'd play a bunch of shows with that guy or we'd play, uh, you know, there was, there was this one pretty cool kind of psychedelic, like, I don't know. You know, they 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 weren't they didn't really sound like anybody else. I mean, they were you know, like like we we found we found the one other band in town that was like also kind of into beef heart and also into, you know, doing mushrooms and playing music all night and that kind of thing. So like we found the one other band that would play shows with us and then we would play with them all the time. So then it, you know, then it's like okay, like how many shows are you going to play with the exact same lineup? We've got to like figure out what we're doing. So we play, we, you know, we play with like total harsh noise bands and um, we'd play, you know, like our friend, our friend Mira would, you know, write five songs and be like, Oh Mira, you should like play a show with us. You know, like she'd never played shows before. So, you know, and then, then, you know, so when we, when we did our first tour, it was actually, uh, Mira was our like support act 
you know, zero commonality musically. It was just like, oh, this is our friend who writes songs. Like, we're going to have her come on tour with us. That's great. Yeah. So this, I mean, so this was, um, I mean, K Records is is like a, the legendary label out of Olympia. Yeah. That was, that was, is that centered around Beat Happening? Was that, is, yeah. is, is it Calvin Johnson's label? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that started in, that was more of like an 80s thing, right? It started in the 80s. Okay. And then is that the label that, you eventually would sign with and release albums. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's so, but it yeah. but it took a while because you know like like I would always hand Calvin tapes and stuff because we would we were both doing radio shows on KAOS at the same time and like you know like so I always knew where he'd be on you know Monday night at nine p.m. Oh like Calvin's got his radio show like I better like knock on the door and hand him a tape. Um, but, you know, getting him to come see us live kind of took a while. Um, and, and I think when he finally saw us, I think he was really surprised because he, he had this idea of what he thought we might sound like based on, you know, you know, maybe aspects of our sort of social personas or how we dressed or whatever. I mean, maybe, maybe he thought we were going to be a little bit too hippie for his taste, you know? And then when he saw us, he, he actually was really into it and um, kind of became more supportive. And um, yeah, that was cool. This was so, so we're talking mid nineties coming into the mid to late nineties. Like at that time, you know, you mentioned the impact that the internet has had now on subcultural spaces or the vacuum of subcultural spaces. It, it's like, it's on the one hand has contributed to this massive global homogenization. It like, you know, every aspect of life can be completely homogenized. You know, you, you know, every, you know, you, you just, you order something online and it's the exact same thing that you're going to get anywhere else in the world, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, I was, I was, I was on this trajectory of talking about the local culture and like we would go on tour and like, we would play a town like Santa Cruz and like, Oh, like Santa Cruz is another town where there's this really distinct local culture where, you know, there are these like groups of friends of students and, you know, recently graduated kids who are sticking around. They're all in bands. You know, everyone plays in like two or three different bands and they all have the same member and they all go out and see each other's parties and house shows and they all support each other's projects. And, you know, maybe one guy out of the whole group will get the idea to start a label and then he'll, you know, they'll be releasing kind of music from a few of the different bands and then some of those bands will go to San Francisco and start playing shows up there and you know like us like maybe we would go play a show in Portland and meet other people in Portland or or whatever and it was this very um you know there was no uh you know n n nothing uh shoving anything down anyone's throats to like consume your product it's it's all this very like uh, street level relationship building. Right. It just kind of seemed to happen. 
Yeah. 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 And so now depend, you know, this whole idea of like musical algorithms and, and, and typing in like, Oh, well, okay. I know I like, well, I, I like that one song off the white album and I like, this one song by the doors and i like this one song by Jimi hendrix it's like oh well here are all the different bands i'm gonna like or whatever you know like it it's like we were forced to you know share bills and 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 scenes and 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 community with you know lots of stuff that we wouldn't necessarily be immediately like into as like that's like our favorite thing in the world but it was about building like a wider community of like like no like it it's friday night there's a show like some of our friends are part of this show like i might not like all the bands but i'm gonna like there's gonna be a vibe you know like we're just you know and and like and like someone's gonna like be making little cupcakes or something to to sell at the merch table someone's going to be making a big pot of soup and so everyone's going to get a a bowl of soup when they come to the punk rock show or you know someone's going to make a pumpkin pie and everyone's going to get pumpkin pie at the punk rock show you know like like that was a thing that was happening a lot and you know there was uh there was a continuity between the musicians and visual artists and you know a lot of the musicians that we were doing stuff with were visual artists so there were, you know, there were kind of distinct, you know, there were things happening in like graphic design and, and, and specific things, you know, we were all recording at the same recording studios. So there would be kind of these like, you know, there would be sonic continuity, even though the music of old time religion was completely in another dimension of the cosmos than Mira's first album but they're recorded in the same studio with the same people engineering. So like the songs on Mira's first album where there are drums, it's the same drum sound that we had on old time religion records. And like only people listening to both things would realize like, oh, there's like this connection between all these different people as sort of, you know, satellites of this kind of self-contained you know, universe of, of, of people working with each other. I know it's, 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 um, it's interesting because I saw a lot of that in Michigan, um, growing up, you know, I had, there was, there was, there's something about, um, like the scene, I guess you'd call it a scene. Like, yeah, I, I grew up in like, um, the, like throughout high school and college, we had this loose collective of friends that all made music together and we were all in bands together and we were all like into, you know, Sonic Youth and, and Wolf Eyes, and it was all, like, very psychedelic, noisy rock. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of just developed, like, our own little community there. Um, but then going forward from that, like, as, as we were aging and we started doing things like running our own venues and stuff, it was, it was crazy when a band from out of town would come in because you could so clearly tell that they were out of, from out of town. The music yeah. was so different. It was... Yeah. It was like, I don't even know how music like this is made. I can't even fathom it. Like, yeah. you're on an entirely different trajectory here. It was, it's, it's really wild. Um, and yeah, I do think we're probably 
I don't know. Are we losing? Are we losing that? Well, this is what this is my question is like now. If you're eight between eighteen and twenty four, say in a in a town like Olympia or Detroit or wherever, and what do you do with that energy? Are these are these people still collecting in spaces, or has all of this sublimated online and become like meme spaces and stuff like that? It it's kind of I don't know like fractalized in this weird way like right now in olympia and i mean we, you know we we can talk pre covid and post covid but i mean even even before covid even in pre covid olympia there were a good uh it it's been about 4 or 5 years since the only all ages venue closed right wow then there was one bar that would let all ages shows happen if they were over before 9 p.m so they would do they do like a 6 p.m or a 7 p.m show and then they do the like the 10 p.m show so they'd have like two shows a night but it it wasn't really it wasn't the ideal venue for touring bands because I don't know, like the, the infrastructure for touring bands being able to come through got really inconsistent because there weren't really people. Um, I don't know something about like the, the, the promotion machine wasn't really uh, flexing very well. I mean, the promotion so, machine is, severely changed every three to four years yeah and so like with with younger people in olympia what you have is you have a lot of different house venues you have house venues all over town people doing shows either in backyards in the summertime or in basements in the winter or whatever the problem with the house show thing and and this really pisses me off because i'll go downtown to the coffee shops and I'll see a poster hanging out, all these bands I've never heard of. And then at the bottom of the flyer, it'll say the, you know, the something, something, the chocolate pancake house, like whatever the fuck. And then it says below that, ask a punk. And I'm like, fuck you. I've been a punk in this town for almost 30 fucking years. I am more the fuck punk than you will ever be in your snotty ass privileged 22 year old fucking world and you're asking me to ask a punk to find the fucking address for your goddamn show that only your fucking friends are going to go to right so there's no sense that i see any in like the like well i'm all right i can think of exceptions right it, there's always going to be exceptions but for the most part, what I'm seeing with, you know, the 18 to 25 year old like music scene in Olympia is that they're only playing for people who are already their friends. They have no sense of like vision in expanding outside of their bubble to build. It's like, hey, like, let's do a show with a band that's like from a slightly different scene. So our friends and their friends will come and like we'll encourage our friends to check out a thing they don't already know because what happens 
if those bands end up on a bill, it's like you have the crowd of like this and this and this and, and this person all in front watching their friends. And then when that band's over and the other band sets up, they all go home or they go to the bar across the street and get shots and they don't come back. So it's like, you know, fuck that. That's, that's ridiculous. So if you, you know, fortunately there's one venue in Olympia that has survived COVID and is still starting to do shows again. And the way that they do things there, I mean, it's, and it's a bar, so it's, it's already, you know, the age discrimination is a thing there, but the way that they set things up is that the, the musical offerings are highly diverse and there's something about the setup and the format of the place that for some reason, people tend to stick around a little bit more for the whole event. Uh, I don't know if that's always the case, but people seem to be a little bit more willing at that specific venue. But like, if you, you know, if you have like a house show going on or whatever, it's, it, it's, they're always going to be these, you know, I call them microclimates. It's, it's these like homogenized microclimate type bills where, you know, it's, it's just, it's just like you, it, it's like going to any other party. It's like, Oh, like here's a bunch of people who all know each other. Right. Sort of like a recommendation algorithm brought into physical space where everybody's kind of sorted into their kind of like stays within their own bubble in a way. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there, there are plenty of exceptions. There are plenty of people who, you know, they, 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 they have the sense of mind to, to, to try to like mix it up a little bit, but. Um, yeah. A lot of this comes down to good booking and, and kind of just practicing good hospitality, like, Making sure that if, if there's no local fans for, for the draw to support the touring act, that you need to put them in between two acts where everyone's going to stay or around for it. That's, that's like booking 101 right there. A lot it, of it is just creating the right space. It, it is. And, and, and so the funny thing about the kind of the egalitarian nature of Olympia, where like, you know, the, the, the DIY ethos is like, oh, like, you know, you don't have to be a good musician. You can you can start a band and do a show, and you know we'll support you and 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 come hang out. The thing is, there's also this kind of like real strong undercurrent of like an anti-professionalism. So, you know, what is good booking? You know, there's there's this kind of like like well, who cares what good booking is? We're gonna like just do this. Like we're just playing for our friends. We don't care about that. So. You, you, you have these kind of competing mindsets yeah, coming good, on. Good, you know, bu- good booking isn't very punk. It's just, I don't, yeah, I know. It's like, uh, I mean, even, even like curation is sort of uh, rare. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of rare. Well, you know, I've, there's, there's, We've, we've, we've been, we're about, what, 20 months into the, the global pandemic now. Um, what have you been doing to, to keep up? Like, are you not touring? Because you were probably the most uh, active touring musician that I, I've, I've known in the past decade. And in a lot of ways, I believe you're making, you're living from that, which is a rare, uh, it's very rare, and especially with this kind of music. So I'm, yeah. I'm kind of yeah. wondering 
where, where you're at these days. Well, I, I actually just got back from our, our with, with old time religion did a, a month long tour in Europe um, from um, beginning, beginning of November to the beginning of December. And uh, I'll tell you, it was like Indiana Jones escaping the Temple of Doom, where the columns are just falling all around you at every moment, because we could not have done that tour at any other point. We could, there were countries we played, we could have, we, we could not have played in like two weeks before. And literally for like almost a week in a row, every time we entered a new country, we would get news that the place we had just left was going into another lockdown. Wow. So one night we played in Prague and they were like, Oh, we're so happy to have you. This is the first concert we've had here in 18 months. The next night in Vienna. Oh, I don't know if anyone's coming tonight. We're going into lockdown again tomorrow morning. Wow. You know, and, and so like, <clears throat> it was pretty fucking weird. Not a single show was canceled. We, we played all of our shows and I'm happy to say most of them, most of them were pretty extraordinary experiences. Just, just to be there just that it was happening at all but like particularly in italy and france uh belgium to some extent uh, people were really excited to be part of our ceremony we got a lot of support in merch sales a, a lot of like really enthusiastic people a lot of people telling us this is the first thing that they've been to in in 18 months 20 months whatever the first show they've gone out to um but i know that at least in at least in france a, a lot of those venues had to shut down again i think i think italy is still kind of hanging on because they have a much higher adherence to masking and precautions because they were hit so hard in the beginning like they're much more uh, careful in following protocols. Whereas in every other country, there would be like, you know, there'd be the official rules and then how people actually enforce it or follow it was a lot muddier than what I've been experiencing, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Like here, if it says like, you know, we will not let you in the door unless you show your Vax card and have a mask at all times. Like every everything I've been to in Seattle or Olympia or Portland, if it says that, that's that's what they're doing. But in Europe, like, you know, there'd be a thing like, you know, it, it would say that you have to wear your mask. But once the show starts, everyone takes their mask off. So like, OK, uh, that's weird. You're having another uh, resurgence of the virus. I, I never would have, I mean, I don't know who would have seen that coming. Yeah. I had this, uh, we were just in New York not too long ago and I had the same sort of culture shock just from LA in LA where like, if you go inside somewhere, people are masked in New York city. It was like, 
I was I was found myself in crowded bars where like not a single person had a mask on. Yeah, it's like you know there there's a there's a cycle you know like you i mean i you know i I don't know what point of the cycle we're in with this but it it's if if you're gonna follow precautions at all you have to follow them all the way yeah i feel like hopefully we're in a we're in a part of the cycle where we're just enough I don't know. Whatever. I'm not. I, never mind. I don't want to predict. Dude, it yeah. Dude, none of us know. <laughs> no. If we if we say this now, by the time this airs, yeah. Oh yeah. Who the fuck? So different. Not a uh, I will say, just hearing you talk about that tour made me realize, fuck, I miss live music. I have not been to a, a anything any musical show since 2020, since not 2019, probably. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if 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 we had. I feel like if if we had really uh, had our wits to ourselves, we we may not have done this tour if we had really known what we were in for. But the fact was, it was like the tour had been booked and canceled three separate times. You know, beginning in you know 2019, it was organized for 2020, and then it had to be you know completely completely canceled and rebooked three completely separate times and it it was literally the only window in which we could have done that mm. and and I don't really I don't really see when doing a tour like that again will be possible for us at least in Europe I mean I think you know I'm still doing like dates in the northwest kind of here and there i'm playing like small venues or house venues i feel relatively at ease doing uh i don't i don't have anything set right now um but uh you know i i could foresee doing a a, a west coast tour or you know i don't know maybe coming out to detroit at some point in the spring um but um the, the thing that i'm excited about is I'm I'm really into embracing uh, the last minute show. I'm into embracing the shows that are booked a week before, because pre-pandemic things were getting really fucking crazy with every single venue worth playing, every single booking agent worth working with would have all their bands and all their tours completely solidified like even more than six months ahead of time. And then people would be writing me, asking me about shows. It's like, so what are you doing in, in May of 2023? It's like, I don't fucking know. I don't know what I'm doing next week. Why don't you invite me to play a show next week? Cause I'm free next week. <laughs> why, why book something a year ahead? It, for like a you know like a rock show in a in a in a in a in a in a venue like like I could see you know the need to set it up that way if you're booking like a big festival but like what is this nonsense with all these booking agents insisting on blocking out all the dates at a venue more than a year ahead it, it that has to end. 
and 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 I I'm I'm all about being the agent of change in in that in that area. Like we need to get back into last minute shows where we have no idea if the thing's actually going to happen or not. We're just going to we're just going to do it. You know, like you know, bands used to book tours while they were on tour. You know, people used to show up and like go to a record store and be like, hey, man, like, do you know any venues in town? Do you know anyone who sets up shows? Because, like, we're, like, living out of this van, and, like, we're free tonight, and, like, we don't really have to be anywhere until Sunday, so if you know somebody who, like, books a venue, like, we'll show up and play tomorrow. You know, like, people used to do that regularly, and you could see amazing bands that way. Um nowadays not so much and and it's weird because it should be hella easier to do that because you don't even you don't even have to go to the record store you could you could email them you could you know get on their facebook or whatever but but that's not how it works people are it's because it's so saturated people are filling up all the dates on the calendar six months nine months 12 months ahead of time Hmm. and that's nonsense it has to stop like too easy now or something like that yeah it got too easy yeah. and then much more difficult for everybody else. <coughs> well, cool. Arrington, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it was super cool to have you on the yeah. show. Yes. Um, so hopefully, hopefully you can get a gig next week. And uh, I hope you know. so. I'm looking for it. <laughs> we'll be uh, we'll be following up with you uh, in the new year. Hopefully, hope to see you in Detroit. All right, all right, my brother. Great to meet you. Thanks, Arrington. Hit me up any. Hit him up anytime is what I think he said. He was going to say time, I'm sure. (laughs) Cool. Great talking to Arrington. Thanks for tuning in to the Far Off Sounds podcast. I'm Nick George, always joined by Jacob Hurwitz-Goodman. Our guest today was Arrington Dionisio. Uh, If you like the Far Off Sounds podcast, you should watch all 21 of our episodes, which we have available for you to watch for free uh, if you visit faroffsounds.org. And we do have a little bit of bonus content on the show today. Uh, I just wanted to share uh, this piece. I guess you can call it a piece. It's like a video that Arrington made um, in the fall of 2017. It looks like... uh, almost like a cable access presentation or cable access show. It has that like classic like video, uh, like rudimentary video technology uh, and a green screen and stuff. And it's, it's, it's titled This Saxophone Kills Fascists. And it's a 35-minute piece um, about how you can use a saxophone to kill fascists. He's joined by a couple friends, and it's, it's fantastic. So I'm going to play it for you here. Uh, if you go to our Patreon, uh, or actually just search it on YouTube, uh, you can get the video accompaniment. It's really fantastic. So I'll leave you with, uh, this saxophone kills fascists. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Arrington Dionyso of This Saxophone Kills Fascists. 
Today, we're going to learn everything that you need to know about using the saxophone as a tool for the liberation of all people. Now, with me tonight, I've got my friend Josh and China Star. Hey, guys. Hey, Arrington. How's everybody doing? Oh, we're doing great tonight. All right. So, you know, we got to start out with the saxophone. Now, the saxophone is a conically shaped instrument that uh, is very, has a very narrow bore up at the tip with the mouthpiece and the reed. And then it, it, as it goes down the body of the instrument, it flares out. And here you have, uh, it's almost like a natural acoustic amplifier. So these things can get pretty loud and pretty powerful. And if you're dealing with people who uh, are intolerant and um, you know, have hatred in their hearts, hopefully this sound will be something that will break that hatred apart and just let it dissipate through the bloodstream. So let's see. Let's start with having all of the keys on your instrument closed. That's going to get you the lowest note of the saxophone. Now we have, uh, remember that you've got these keys on your pinky too, so you want to close those up too. And uh, we, have, we have two tenor saxophones and one alto, so the sounds are going to be slightly different, uh, tuned about a fifth apart. So that'll make kind of a nice, uh, kind of awkward harmony. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's have at it, folks. All right. Now, it may be that our mouthpieces are just uh, adjusted a little bit different. We're not quite all getting the exact same note, but that's okay because we believe that there's a certain kind of, uh, how would you say it, like a, like, like a harmony within the dissonance of all of our, of our democratic voices, speaking up because we, the people, are all going to have different things to say. And so, you know, we may not all be saying the same thing at the same time. And that's all right. That's what democracy is all about, because we're going to make sure that our voices are all heard. All right, well, let's try with the highest note without, well, without any keys pressed down. Let's, let's see what that sounds like. Hey, that's great. You know, uh, you guys have excellent breath control. That was a, a nice, long, resounding um, thing there. So um, now another thing that's fun. Now let's say if we have all the keys down, but then lift all of the keys in your, uh, let's see, the, the, the first three fingers of your right hand and, and just kind of like go back and forth like that, we'll have a cool sound there too. All right, and now let's do the same thing but with our left hand and we kind of get an idea of what we sound like with that. Well, uh, let me think if there's anything else. You know, if you want to get a, a real nice biting screeching tone, you can kind of just slightly bite the tip of your reed with your teeth, and you get kind of like a All 
So that's, that's, a, real, that's a real good one if, if you've got like a real bona fide Nazi just like right up in your face. You do the... That'll scare them off real, real quick. Uh, all right, well, you know, I think, uh, I think that's about it. Uh, it uh, do we, any questions before we get started on killing some fascism? Mm, like how many horns do you think we, we really need here in America? How many well, saxophones do you think it's going to take? Well, it's my hope that with the information contained in this program, that each and every one of you will uh, consider the possibility of uh, uh, purchasing or, or maybe uh, crafting your own saxophone. Um, building a saxophone like this one might be a, a little bit of a challenge to get, uh, you know, trying it out your first time, but w there are ways to build, uh, you know, approximate replicas of a saxophone with uh, PVC pipes, uh, maybe an old oil tin, um, some, some reeds from a, maybe like from a swamp or something, you could get some reeds and, 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 and just carve them off on the tip real good like that. A lot of uh, fascists in the swamp, you gotta watch out for those. Well, ones. yeah, be careful. Luckily that's where reeds come from. Yeah. Actually. Drain the swamp, play a saxophone. Well, the, the, the funny thing about swamps is that a swamp is actually a sign of a healthy ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, we want the alligators and, and snakes and frogs and, and, the, and the, the beautiful blue herons to live in harmony. Um, and, you know, if we get down into the Florida Keys, we got the manatee too, which is an endangered species. So um, hopefully we uh, let those creatures live in peace. All right, well, anyway, let's get to it. Um, for this one, let's start out in, a, I'll, I'll kind of um, give a, a, a rhythm and uh, maybe we could start out, um, I'll, I'll do a note, and you do a note, we'll do kind of a back and forth, like uh, 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 kind of call and response, and then China, you'll come in kind of as we, as we get that rhythm built up, and once the rhythm's built up, I'll, uh, you know, we can kind of take turns soloing a little bit on that. Sounds great. All right.
Covered in blood, aren't we? <laughs> Tripping from every pore. Oh my god. Underneath my clothes, I'm sweating. Yeah. I'm feeling it. It might seem intimidating to take on fascism. True. Fascism is a pretty big subject and really ever present in this changing world of ours. But extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. Sometimes we can use our saxophones 
to whisper gently like the wind. Is this also deadly to fascists? It really is, so. in so many ways. Try some tongue rolls. Mm. That's a really fun effect that you can do just with the <laughs> kind of like saying the Spanish R. Another thing that takes a little bit more practice is the tongue pop. And that's where you, you kind of have to flick the tip of the reed with your tongue as you're playing, like, like, like that, but you do it inside your mouth. So it kind of sounds like... That's excellent. You guys are doing great. <laughs> now, another fun thing to do, because uh, remember how we talked about before how the, the, the saxophone consists of this one 
long, um, not really a column, like a, it's like a flared cone that's, you know, bent around. So if we were to have all, like say we have, well, let's see, not do all the keys. Let's, let's just have the, um, our, our, the three fingers on each hand pressing down those keys. And what if you have those pressed down, but you lift one up maybe with that finger right there? So we're kind of going to, we're going to divide the column of air. There's still going to be air going down the length of the instrument up to about there to make that note resonate. But then when we, when we, when we re release this key, there's also going to be air coming out of here. So if we, if we blow just right, we'll be able to get two and maybe even three tones at the same time, kind of like an overtone chord. Um, maybe I'll try it first and we can do yeah. it together. Let me try it, and then I'm going to try it with this finger here, just to see if we get a different sound. Yeah, that's that's. I think that one works a little bit better because because I think with with that one, it's just there's too much space um, getting let out with that key. So we'll try it with the pointer finger of the right hand. Let's, uh, how about, how about you start one, China?
to explore a little bit is note bending with your embouchure. Your embouchure, of course, refers to what you're doing with your lips, your tongue, and the inside of your mouth as you're playing. Now, let's say I'm not, you know, it's like sometimes with the saxophone, all these keys and mechanisms and rods and stuff, it can get a little bit intimidating if you're just starting out for the first time. But a lot of, um, you know, beginners don't realize how much power you have just in playing one note at a time or, or one fingering position because you can actually get a lot of different notes by varying the pressure of your lips and um, if you kind of slowly move your lip up and down the tip of the reed as you're playing you can get a variety of different sounds. So again I'm going to demonstrate without holding down any of the keys at all just you know, just the, uh, the kind of the natural tone of the instrument here without the keys being pressed down. So I'm kind of doing like a, you know, like in the inside of my mouth as I'm, as I'm playing the reed and, and we get like this sort of sliding tone and you know, as you as you learn to control it, you can um, you know you can hit different frequencies. You can kind of go for a more um, like a more emotional voicing of the instrument. So it's just like like I guess I'm I'm relaxing my lips as much as I can, but still holding on to the mouthpiece at the same time with that kind of kind of sound. So why don't you go ahead and uh, try that out. Great. Yeah. Well, let's see. 
Is there anything else? Do you have any questions at this point? Oh. How do we identify a fascist? Mm. Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think fascism is marked by a tendency towards authoritarianism and a, a, an unquestioning authoritarianism in which any uh, challenge to that authority is uh, uh, suppressed with, with force. Um, fascists also tend to be, um, uh, in most cases, very racist, uh, uh, often enforcing um, ar archaic uh, ideas of, of sexuality and gender, and, and so you know, very, um, very oppressive, especially towards women. Um, and, um, hmm, I don't know. What do you think? What are some other characteristics of fascism? They're always looking for an enemy. Yeah. Someone that's to Scapegoating, blame. scapegoating. Someone to blame. So that could be the Jews or the Muslims or uh, immigrants, um, ethnic minorities. Those could all be scapegoats for, um, you know, like a smoke and mirrors of, of larger social problems. If you could just, you know, put the blame on some other group, then that's a way of enforcing the, the power of that unquestioned authority. Mm. Sounds like anyone who's a little xenophobic. Mm. Yeah. And, and what happens if you're not a fascist? Can you also appreciate this music? Well, I would certainly hope so. <laughs> but, you know, different folks follow different strokes. Not all music is for all people, but when I play music, it's my goal to, to really reach from the heart to the voice, from, from, to, 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 um, you know, to, to, to channel the, the, the inner force of, of my soul, to really express something that, that no one else in the world is going to express the thing that I have to express in exactly the same way that, that, that I will intend to. And, and in, inside you, Josh, you've got something that only you can express in, in your unique, special way. And, and you too, China, there's something inside you that, that only you can really you know, tap into the bottom of your soul and, and, and bring out into the world. And you know, that's, that's another hallmark of, of democracy. I mean, we all have our own voices, we all have our own things that we're going to want to say, whether it's through our speech and words or through the sound of our music. And, uh, you know, I think that the ways that our sounds and, and music combines as a whole, you know, that's, uh, I think, a really wonderful way of um, il illustrating, like, I mean, not just democracy, but also, um, you know, that, that, that we can come together as one and still retain our own unique qualities. We don't have to give ourselves completely to the collective and lose our individual identity. And yet, we can enter into a situation, you know, musically, where, you know, we're not, it's not like one person is trying to be the leader and everyone else is the follower. We, we all have our own collective voices, and yet, as a whole, we're gonna say something that we wouldn't be expressing just as individual musicians as well. So these are all important points to consider as we um, continue to uh, use this saxophone or that saxophone or that saxophone to kill fascism. Well, I think on that note, we'll probably uh, 
you know, come to the end of our program. Um, we're going to end with a little bit more music to just let us uh, soar on out of here. On soar on out of here and, and into the streets on wings of freedoms, uh, uh, flying on the wings of eagles, growling like a panther. This saxophone kills fascists. This other saxophone's this saxophone's other saxophone is a broomstick. Um, and in the immortal words of Albert Eiler, music is the healing force of the universe. And so much fun. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.